Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Melody Thomas Scott is my guest today. Melody has been playing the iconic Nikki Newman on CBS's The Young and the Restless for the last 41 years. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Not just that the show has been on that long, it's been on longer than Melody's tenure, certainly, but that she's been playing one character for 41 years. Like, that's wild. That's so cool. So we talk a lot about soap operas today, and I will tell you right off the bat, I am not really a soap opera person at all. I haven't watched them in many years, but I have a great appreciation for them. They were certainly on in my house growing up. I grew up with a a mom who worked part-time, so she was home with us three days a week. I definitely remember, like over the summers especially, because we were in school most of the day, but uh, having soap operas on, mostly on our kitchen TV, just sort of as, as background noise, I guess. At least that's how my sister and I, I think, perceived it. My mom was probably watching a lot closer, but I think All My Children was her show, maybe. General Hospital, I feel like, was in there. Maybe Young and Restless at some point. I don't, I don't even remember for sure. But I definitely know, you know, soaps were on in our house. And then as a student in college, I went to Emerson College in Boston. And we used to take trips down to New York and go behind the scenes at different production facilities. We got to go to Comedy Central. We went to uh, David Letterman when he was still making The Late Show. And uh, one of the times we got to go to, I believe it was All My Children, it was one of the soaps that shot in Manhattan and just see their operation. So that was really cool. And then as an adult, you know, I worked at this old house for many, many years. And this old house used to compete in the Daytime Emmy Awards. And the Daytime Emmy is its other lifestyle and cooking shows, its talk shows. But certainly when I first started attending the award shows, you know, 10 plus years ago, soap operas dominated like crazy. And there were so many categories for the soaps, and they were just so all-encompassing. It was fascinating to me, you know, coming from a construction show where there were five or six people on the team to all of a sudden just endless categories of daytime drama professionals, you know, stunt people, hair people, makeup, uh, original song, you know, writing music for the shows, uh, obviously actor, actress, that kind of stuff, directing, lighting, camera And if you've been paying attention, soap operas have been in decline for a number of years. And I talk about that with Melody in the interview, some of the stats and things on that. At this point, there's really only four network shows left on the air. Young and the Restless has not only been on this whole time, but has been number one for years at this point now. I mean, many, many years. Long before there were just four soaps, they were still number one. And yeah, Melody is certainly a big part of that success. Melody has a new book out, Always Young and Restless, My Life On and Off America's Number One Daytime Drama. And it is a really interesting book. Again, as I said, I'm not a big soap opera person. I was not going into this book at all interested in, you know, a daily play-by-play about her character's love life or, you know, things like that. And her book is not that. It was fascinating. I read it cover to cover She got started in the business at a very young age as a child actor, around age three, I believe. And she talks a lot about her background growing up in this business, being raised by her grandmother, who was very abusive. 
And she does not hold back on what that abuse looked like in the book. And we talked about it some in this interview, but she was somebody, her grandmother was somebody that wanted fame, wanted fortune, wanted Hollywood for herself and never got it. And saw Melody as I think a vehicle to try to achieve some of those things and was very controlling, was very abusive and also witnessed sexual abuse perpetrated by many men in the entertainment industry on Melody at a very young age. And we, we dig into some of that today. It's a tough conversation, and it was, it was a tough section of the book to read. But fortunately, Melody has gotten through all that and is out the other side. And we talk about the highlights of her career as well. And Young and the Restless is back, making new shows despite coronavirus. And, you know, they're taking all the proper safety precautions, dealing with COVID. And the fans are loving it. It's fun. So I think even if you're not a soap person, you're going to get stuff out of this. If you are a soap person, you're probably going to get a lot more out of it. But it's a really fun conversation. And obviously, all these interviews, you know, I do with people over the phone from their houses. You'll hear Melody's dog in the background some there, especially at the beginning. That's just part of life. That's where we are right now, right? (laughs) We're all stuck at home, quarantined away from uh, recording studios and fancy equipment and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, what you hear is what you get. Melody's got a dog. You're going to hear the dog. It's fun. All right. Here it is. My interview with Melody Thomas Scott. So I want to start by just asking uh, the general question, I guess, of how this whole quarantine period, these last, you know, whatever, seven, eight months have been for you. Well, oh, my goodness. You know, like like all of the productions, we were down for a good four months. Of course, we're back. We've been back since Uh mid-July. And it's still not what it used to be. I don't know if or when it ever will be. It's very much like the Twilight Zone. You know, I mean, so many of us castmates who worked together for decades, all we wanted to do when we finally saw each other was hug and kiss and talk. And right. of course, we're not allowed to do any of that. So we're very fortunate that we have, you know, come back to work. We're in the studio. We're doing what we love to do. But it's a very different world. It's it's just not the way it used to be. Yeah. You guys were one of the first shows, you know, I guess daytime in general went back a lot earlier than in a lot of, a lot of other things. What did that feel like going Is back in true? July? I think, I, yeah. I my, didn't really think about that. Were we? Yeah, I, I think you guys were maybe the second. I feel like there was another soap, maybe Days of Our Lives went back like a week before you guys, but still July is, is feels early to me anyways, compared to what a lot of other people were yeah. doing. Like, I, I, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Like, what was that mix, I guess, of, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was some happiness of being able to be back at work, but as you said, it, it sounds kind of bittersweet too. But a whole different canvas and, and so many things that we all have to think about now that was never our responsibility. Yeah. It, it's just, I mean, our poor hair, makeup and wardrobe people, we we're fortunate. We, our show has two sound stages side by side with a big door in between so that you can run in and in and out. And they are not even allowed on the set that we are shooting on. They are on the adjacent set watching a monitor to check our makeup and our hair and whatnot. And so if they do need to run in, they look like surgeons, Heath, I'm telling you. They've got wow. the gowns and three masks and the shield and the gloves. And I mean, it's, it is very surreal, but 
very necessary these days. So I think that our show is doing a tremendous job in uh, keeping us all safe. And we do feel safe. So we're doing the best we can. Yeah, that's all anyone can do right now, I guess, too. Um, I, I had read on Twitter, too, there was when you guys first came back and started airing new episodes, fans were reaching out because they noticed you were wearing a wig and you, you sort of addressed that on your Twitter that it, Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Because they couldn't do hair well, initially. The, right. The first few weeks back, we didn't have hair, makeup, uh, wardrobe services. So, um, that was very difficult. And the hair situation was most difficult for me because not to say my hair is, is any better than anybody else's, but my hair is very, very thick and coarse with an ugly natural wave. And in the best of times, it needs to be beaten into submission by our hairdressers. <laughs> and it's something that I am, you know, one person cannot do it to themselves. Right. So that was a, a big struggle for me. And I really had no choice but to do that. I knew it was temporary. The fans, of course, didn't. And yes, they were very concerned and, and some were upset. Oh, that's horrible. Well, you've got to get rid of that wig. And then it got to, oh my goodness, maybe Melody is ill. Is she all right? And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to put a stop to this now. <laughs> so yes, I should send out a tweet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with everything else in the world that you could talk about, everybody, all of our fans seem to want to just talk about my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is funny, like just the relationship, I guess, that the audience forms with you. I mean, you've, you've been at the show for 41 years now. Like, just what does that feel like? Just there are no jobs really in television that, that lasts that long, short of maybe like Sesame Street or something. You are so right. It It is such a blessing. First of all, for one show to be on that long right. is incredible. And then to be an actor that long on on a show is really just unheard of, really. Yeah. So I count my blessings every day. What is a work week look like for you typically? Like, how often are you on set? How often are you guys filming? Like, does it carry the same struggles, I guess, as a regular production, or does it become almost like a nine to five job after, you know, 40 plus years? Well, we work much faster than any other production. Daytime is known for working fast. Yeah. You know, you don't have the luxury if you're on a film set or a nighttime show where maybe they're doing three or four pages a day. We do over 80 pages a day wow. and there's no time to waste. And of course, it's very dialogue intensive. You need to know your lines. There's not a lot of time to do any retakes. Really, I, I think a wall would have to fall down for us to reshoot something really? at this point. <laughs> so you have to be on your toes and you have to be ready. Now, as far as our schedule, our individual schedules, that is always determined by the writers as far as, you know, if you're in a heavy storyline that week or what's going on, if there's a big wedding or... It, there are so many different factors that determine how many days you're in that week. So it, it can be, well, in the old days, we used to shoot five days a week, but now we only shoot four. So Mondays were dark. Uh, and then we shoot an hour each Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So it's just wildly different. It's, it's always different. I worked every day last week. I, I'm working two days this week. It, it's just constantly changing. Gotcha. I'm always curious, too, like when you sort of know what an arc is, you know, let's say there's going to be like a set that's there for two weeks and then it gets scrapped. 
Like, are you shooting like the way a film would? Are you shooting all the scenes on that set on a particular day? Or are you shooting like one complete episode per day and jumping around, you know, set to set and character uh, to character? It, it is, it's typically one complete episode wow. um, unless we have a few scenes to post tape or pre-tape for various reasons. Uh, and we have the luxury of we have these two beautiful sound stages at TV City and we have all of our sets up permanently. Oh, wow. So um, it, it is kind of a homey feeling. You know exactly where your set is located on which stage. So, yeah, there, there's not a lot of take it up, take it down. I mean, for the temporary sets, of course, they have to go up and down quickly, but there's space for that. Gotcha. So the main characters' families and their offices and the restaurants, they're up pretty much all the time. Gotcha. How much in advance are you getting scripts and how much like how much do you learn lines in advance? Or have you gotten to the point, I guess, where you can kind of read it, you know, 10 minutes before you go on and... Yeah, bingo. You got that. (laughs) You're right about that. And it's funny. I think all of us members of the Newman family, none of us really suffer over our lines until the day we get there. And then we'll run it together a few times and we know it. You just after so many years, your brain, they say, is like a muscle. And I have to attest to that. The more you use it, the easier it, it is to remember. And I I'm lucky I have a bit of a photographic memory. So um Oh, well, you read my book, so you know about my freakish memory. Right. Well, and, and plus, I'm sure just the years of experience. I mean, you've been doing this since you were like three years old. So, you you know, yeah. that's a skill you learn pretty early. I, I want to ask, too, just thinking about sort of the daytime landscape. Like, you know, when you started on the show back in 1979, I feel like daytime daytime dramas in particular were sort of at their peak. Uh, the, the closest figure I read was in 1970. There were 19 different soaps on the air. By the year 2000, Uh that was down to 10. And obviously, we're looking at just four today. And like, I remember in in 2011, when One Life to Live and All My Children got canceled, and it felt very seismic, almost like, you know, this, Uh there's a chance this genre may just completely go away. And here we are nine years later, you know, you guys are still holding on. Like, I wonder just sort of, your your take, I guess, on sort of the daytime landscape and why Young and the Restless in particular stays relevant. Well, we are very fortunate. We are still number one in spite of all of the truths that you just said. Yeah. So, you know, that's wonderful. We've been number one, I think, over 35 years now, every week for 35 years, which is incredible. But really, all of us who were around at that time and are still here, we all have to point back to OJ. When the OJ Simpson case broke, that just changed all of the viewers' habits. Everybody was watching the live coverage. I think it was the very first time yeah. that a celebrity murder trial was on television. And even we were watching it. I mean, the whole world was watching. Right. And we didn't realize that that was starting a, pre- a precedent of something called reality television that we wouldn't understand for several years later. It kind of changed the landscape of what people wanted to watch. It got them less into scripted story and more into real stories. So um, slowly but surely, that really was the most detrimental thing in reducing the number of soaps there are on today. It really affected all of daytime programming, not just the soaps. So it's 
it's been a an uphill struggle to try to get back up there and there's there's just simply so much more programming these days kids in college in their dorms they would make sure that they at one o'clock they turned on young and restless or general hospital or whatever it is and uh everyone else too it was very much their daily habit every day it was their break from whatever it was they were doing and then all that changed they lost that habit and got new habits so you know that's just human nature you can't really predict it but i feel that that is very much a part of why there are so few shows now on today yeah that makes sense and i feel like a a lot of it too is just as you said it used to be you would turn on the tv and you know there were three or four channels and you were watching whatever was on at that moment i know for me now like watching tv is you know, going into Netflix or Hulu or whatever and saying, sure. what show do I want to of watch? Course. And, you know, sometimes it's a show that's we, 10 or 15 years old. We have thousands of choices right. of what to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, too, like you talked about the habit piece of it, like for a new audience member coming into it, I, I guess I just wonder, like, do you encounter fans, you know, teenagers or in their 20s or are the majority of fans that you kind of see on the street people that have been watching for 30 or 40 years at this point? Oh, yes. Uh, many of our fans are multi-generational, which is understandable. Back in the day when moms were at home being housewives and mothers doing their housework, traditionally, now don't everybody jump on me. This was how it was back then. Yeah. Their little ones, their two-year-old, three-year-old, when mom sat down on the couch to watch TV, well, so did the, the babies. And so they, not that I think it was appropriate for some of that material they were watching on subs. But they started getting hooked on it. They grew up. They became teenagers. They grew up. They got married, had their own children. Same cycle. So it's very easy for families to just keep passing that down because it, it just becomes a part of their family's things to talk about. So, yeah, I have been at appearances. I've had four generations of one family standing in front of me practically wow. crying because they're meeting me. It's wow. like, oh, my gosh. That's awesome. That's so cool. It's interesting, too, like you talk about it in the book that sort of, you know, these shows are, they're so, um, melodramatic's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. But just things are, things are played much bigger than they would be in other genres. And there is something Uh almost cathartic about that, right? That like people enjoy that, that release. They enjoy that escape. They they like to think about other people's problems. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. They want to see the drama that comes out of conflict is what I should say. Uh, And Bill Bell, our great creator and head writer for so many years, he always said, conflict is the essence of drama. Hmm. And he played that. Every day there were different conflicts happening in in different storylines, and that's what keeps people watching. They want to know how is it going to turn out. They have their choices. They like so-and-so better than so-and-so. And so they're rooting for people that don't exist, mind you, but they do exist very much in their minds and hearts. Right. And And once you grab them by the heart, they're there for good. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And I, I wonder, too, just like that distinction between the character and yourself, like for in one on yeah. one hand, I'm sure that people, they meet you and they probably address you as Nikki a lot and, you know, oh, imagine sure. imagine that you're her. But I wonder, like after playing the same woman for 40 plus years, like do, do those lines start to blur for you at all between, you know, who Melody is and who Nikki is? 
Oh, no, never for me. Okay. Uh, for the fans, yes, of course. Yeah. You're absolutely right. They know you as one person for so many years, it's hard for them to realize that you are just an actor <laughs> playing a role. And, and that that's a sign of a successful character as right. well. When when they the writers have created a character that people are so willing to go with and believe is real, I mean... That that's a tribute to our writers. Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess I don't necessarily mean like you get confused and look in the mirror and say, "Oh, I'm Nikki today." But I guess just more so. Oh, you, like, you you would be surprised how many people do ask. Oh, me that. I'm sure. Say, I'm now, sure. <laughs> is it hard for you to get rid of Nikki when you leave the studio? And I think, oh my God, I said, if that ever becomes hard for me, please slap me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that, right? But I but I guess the harder question maybe is just like, are there are there parts of your personality that you bring? to to that character when you're performing her or are there things that she's she's taught you or things that you've brought over from her into your own life at all hmm. no that would be <laughs> a hard no okay <laughs> <laughs> but certainly there are aspects of my real personality that are ingested into her that it would be difficult not to yeah but i know probably better than the writers do how Nikki will respond to any situation, what she's most likely to say about whatever. So yes, that's where working there for so long, you do know your character best. Yeah. Does that ever cause tension? Like if you get a script and you say, oh no, this is, this is the wrong reaction or, you know, I know she's not this way. No, no, that happens. And, and it does not cause tension. It, it just simply is bound to happen and we'll just make a phone call and say, look, this line on this page, I have to change it to, to this gotcha. because Nikki would never say or think that. Yeah. And they're used to that. That, that doesn't bother them. Gotcha. Uh, I wanted to ask you too, just sort of on that, that line between, you know, character and reality. Um, your, your co-star Eric Braden, who plays Victor, I mean, you've been married to him on screen longer than you've been married to your own husband. <laughs> like you first got married to him in 1984. And I, and I know you guys, it's been off and on and all that. But like, you know. Now, yes, mind you, Victor and Nikki are on their fourth marriage to each other. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, sometimes we're married, sometimes we're not. Yeah. And I was reading the list of people that, that Nikki has been married to. I'm like, oh, she's been married like 20 times or so like it's it's kind of crazy when you see only 12 okay well you, you know the number <laughs> better than 12. me but, but still you know most people Seems like more doesn't yeah, it exactly <laughs> but you know with with eric and just sort of you know people refer to you guys as this kind of power couple and you were mm -hmm. you were inextricably linked um you know in pop yes. culture and all like what is that like for you as, you know, you and Eric as individuals separate from the characters? We are so grateful that we have that elusive chemistry, connection, whatever you want to call it. It's a rarity in this business. We know that. When they first put us together, we couldn't understand it. We thought, what on earth were the most unlikely pairing that this show could have? Yeah. But Bill Bell, again, he was always very good at watching people's performances and he just sensed that there would be a great chemistry between Eric and me long before Eric and I realized it. Of course, Bill was right again there and he created a quote unquote super couple 
that is still going on today. And we love working together, of course. We adore each other. We can't explain how this chemistry happens. And I've tried to describe it all these years and have come up short. But at his 40th anniversary celebration on the set a couple of years ago, I spoke and I said something along the lines of, when we are in a scene together, whether we're chatting peacefully, whether we're fighting, or or maybe our characters are saying nothing at all to each other, I feel like our individual souls recognize that we're together and our souls are dancing together, mm. no wow. matter what the topic of the scene may be. And the fans seem to really like that description of it, and that's the closest I can come to. We, it, we're just so grateful that we have it and we love it and we can feel it. Right. It's something that everyone feels. They can't see it, but they can feel the sparks. And so can we. Yeah. Have you ever experienced that with any other actors? No, nothing like that. I mean, yeah. certainly I have chemistry with many of the actors on our show, past and present. And it's always so much easier and much more fun to play scenes with somebody of chemistry with but nothing like what Eric and I have. Again, unexplainable. Yeah. <laughs> Although we are both Aries. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Yeah, that, <laughs> that very well may be compatible. Um, and does that, um, is that something that evolved over time? Like, you know, or, or did you feel that sort of when those, when those first scripts came in and they paired you guys together, like when you first acted those scenes, yeah. were you like, oh, this is clicking? Or did um, it take, well, you know, 20 yeah. years? Of course, initially, as I say, we thought it was just the goofiest idea ever. We thought Bill had lost his mind. But it didn't take very long at all before we started feeling it. And um, even though I've been acting since I was three, I don't think I had ever had that kind of chemistry with any other actor I worked with before. So it was exhilarating. And I, for one, I was, you know, only 22, probably 23 when we first started working together. I didn't know what this was. I thought, wow, this is so exciting and thrilling. And, uh, of course, by the time they really cemented us together, uh, we were off and running. And, yeah. and the chemistry has, you know, peaked and always always stays at a great level. When we're in the middle of a wedding or something very traumatic, like, oh, my gosh, Victor's been found dead again or he's coming back to life again, you know, these very dramatic things. Uh, then then it really pops. Uh, we don't really care. As I say, we can have no dialogue at all and just sit in the room and look at each other and the fans say, wow, that was such a great scene. We didn't even say one word. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> well, and I want to ask you too just about that sort of the over-the-top acting. You know, you, you mentioned that in your book that it's a very, acting for a soap opera uh -huh. is very different than other film or TV acting. And I just wonder, like uh -huh. you coming up in the business and, and working in, you know, all these other films and, you know, you were on the Waltons before this and things like what was it that how did you learn, I guess, that craft of, of acting specifically for a daytime drama? I don't think I looked at it that way, but it was I, I guess I was born to be on a soap because even as a child actor, I was known in the business for being able to cry easily. So uh -huh. if anybody was looking for a little girl who could cry, they always called my agent and I got the part. So crying 
uh, I guess we could say was my entree into the world of soap because you pretty much better be able to know how to cry, even the men, because, you know, that that's just the nature of our medium. For me, it's fun to step into the shoes of a character that has such drama and conflict always going on. There's always something churning. I enjoy demonstrating that. If an actor wants to be on a soap, if they don't enjoy that, they probably won't last very long or they'll be very unhappy. Yeah. You have to love the drama. Yeah, it is interesting that it is a very different wavelength, though, than, than other, uh, uh-huh. other genres, right? Oh, absolutely. Other genres are realism. Don't overplay it. Underplay it. Be as real as you can. People expect a more dramatic reaction to anything in a soap. I don't know if I understand the psychology of that, but I think that that's true. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I feel like it, it's sort of all the elements working together, right? That, you know, just sort of the softer lighting and the way the music plays and, you know, the acting, like uh-huh. it sort of all comes together and you, you know instantly that you're watching a soap opera and you, you do sort of expect it to be to be a certain yeah. way. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm wondering, too, just like on the point of dramatic storylines, like I love this section in the book. You you were talking about this story arc where Nikki was a stripper. I think it was in this chapter. And you had sort of opened it with this whole list of, you know, she's been widowed, killed her father as he was trying Uh to rape her, drunk herself into a stupor many times, you know, and you go on and on of sort of all the crazy uh, storylines that have come up over the years. Like, is Uh there... Is there a point ever where you're surprised at getting a script or is like, are we at a point now where just kind of anything goes and you're like, oh, okay, she's going to jump out of an airplane and you know what? I don't know. Just something (laughs) completely nuts. And you're like, yeah, that makes total sense. Of course. Um, I suppose that's true. There have been a couple of times that I guess the idea was so outlandish to the writers that they thought they needed to ask me if I would be okay with whatever they had in mind. And the first time was in the very early days, I got called into John Convoy's office, who was our executive producer at that time. And I thought, oh my God, I must be being fired because this was not typical. You you were never called down. I thought, oh no, this is it. Okay, I screwed up. I'm getting fired. And he sat on the other side of the desk, very serious. And he said, now Melody, what would you think about Nikki being a mud wrestler? (laughs) And I had to replay that back in my ears. I thought, wait a minute, I'm not being fired. What? And so I was like, sure, of course, no no problem at all, because I was just so thrilled I wasn't being fired. I thought, okay, I don't even know what mud wrestling is, but I'm going to find out, and gosh, I'm going to be the best darn mud wrestler. (laughs) So at that time... Uh, mud wrestling was all the rage and there were all these different clubs up on sunset where you could go watch that. So I would grab some friends and we'd go up there and see what it was all about. And then the next thing I know, I get called into Mr. Convoy's office again. I thought, Oh no. (laughs) He said, well, the uh, CBS censors heard about the plan of making you a mud wrestler and they're not going along with that. And I'm thinking, well, okay. He says, so, Bill's uh, answer to that is, how about if Nikki is a stripper? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know what would have been worse or better, but I said, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but originally, 
Bill wanted her to be a mud wrestler, but it was Nick behind <laughs> the censored. So, so uh, that so the stripper was born. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> and that must have been challenging too. Just you know, it's it's on daytime television, so like a majority of what a stripper does are things that you couldn't show on TV. I would think so. Just trying to get creative, of, I of guess. With, yeah, like of course, um, and young fans who weren't around for for the actual stripping days they will often make a comment about the stripper's pole or something like that to me. And what they don't understand is back then, there was no such thing as a stripper's pole. <laughs> you just came out and did whatever you did. And our longtime viewers will remember the <laughs> lunacy, shall we say, of all those times that I was on stage stripping, I wore pantyhose <laughs> because the censors insisted yeah. i couldn't be bare-legged so it's like oh yeah how many of you know a stripper who wears pantyhose <laughs> but at the time it's very salacious right. got a lot of attention i think that i was the only stripper in daytime television yeah. even to this day probably <laughs> that's probably true um, in the book, too, you dive a lot into sort of your childhood and, and uh, some of the struggles, both of, of just sort of growing up and, and also working in the business. I want to ask specifically, just you, you go into detail about how abusive your grandmother was. And she she was the uh -huh. maternal figure to you. You know, she, she raised you. Uh -huh. But it was it reminded me a lot of, you know, like Tanya Harding's mother or Michael Jackson's father or, you know, these kind of show business yeah. parents that they're so... Um, they're dependent on the child's income and sort of are living vicariously yeah. through them. But... Yeah, they're, they're actually maybe more ambitious for themselves right, exactly. rather than you. Yeah, yes. but, but at the same time, sort of cutting down the child at every step and just, you know, uh -huh. obliterating their self-esteem and things like that. And it uh -huh. just made me wonder sort of as, as I was reading about, you know, your grandmother, like, what do you know about sort of, where she came from and, and her background, like what, what may have led her to have that type of personality? I really believe that she had at least one personality disorder, which I would say borderline personality. Of course, I know that because it's 2020 and I've read a lot about these things back then. She refused to ever see a doctor ever. So yeah. there was never, ever going to be a diagnosis given at that time. But it was not your normal brain at work. Um, she could go from calm to crazy screaming in a matter of seconds. And it, so that it was a very challenging personality to tiptoe around. I walked on eggshells wherever we were. And certainly if we were on an audition or at a coaching class or tap dance lessons. There were all, all the myriad of things that child actors need to learn how to do, or even on the set. Yeah. I was always looking over my shoulder to see, you know, if she was approving or disapproving, whatever I might be doing. And, and she made my childhood very, very difficult. As you, as you know, you've read the book. Yeah. Um, and that really was, my main reason for writing the book. I, it would never have occurred to me to write a book simply about young and restless. That just didn't enter my mind. And I don't think I would have had the passion to do it. But I always felt that once I grow up and once I get through to the other side, you know, successfully and have overcome all these adversities, I hope to write a book 
so that other people who might be going through their own struggles, if they can see that I got through it, that it could give them hope. And that was really my main motivation in writing it. Yeah. Well, and, and I wonder, too, you talk about getting to the other side of it. Like, as I was reading those sections and then sort of thinking about who you became and, you know, you're a mother now and like I, I know in myself, like I, I see traits of my own parents, good and bad, that just come to the surface mm -hmm. that are just kind of buried in there. Like I'm not consciously trying to behave like them, but they're just there. And like, I, I wonder for you, just like having to sort of unlearn those behaviors or or get better role models, like just what was the challenge like for you, I guess, of becoming an adult? When my own children were small, invariably there are things that come up you have to make a decision how you're going to handle it and every single time I would think to myself now when this happened to me or if it had happened to me when I was three or four how would my grandmother have handled it and of course my brain remembered exactly and I always made the decision to do the exact opposite mm. and uh, I feel that it was the right decisions and my kids today they just learned a lot of my background through this book. And they said, Mom, you you always made the right decisions. You know, we might have been mad at you, right. but, you know, we had done something very bad and you handled it the right way. So in a sense, the way that I was raised was helpful in that I knew immediately to do the opposite. Yeah. So and I know that's not normal. I know most kids, they think the house they're growing up in is the way that it is supposed to be, that it's normal. Uh, and so that that becomes a very familiar feeling to them. I never did. I always knew there was something very wrong in my house and very wrong with her. And I knew that I just had to age out of it. So I I thank God for my intelligence and my stubbornness and just knowing that I had to hang in there and try not to let it affect me too bad. But, you know, of course, it can ask all my psychiatrist about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I, I mean it's it's really impressive i guess to have had that self-awareness that young to just sort of know that this situation is yeah. really messed up and you know i i just need to i need to turn 18 and, and leave effectively exactly. you know like exactly i i don't even know how i knew that term age out but i did yeah <laughs> I wonder, too, just sort of knowing that and, you know, reading in the book about, you know, her, her being in the wings when you're performing or, you know, just yeah. sitting on the stage and things like that. Like, you had a pretty remarkable career as a child actor. Are you able to watch those performances at all or does it bring back memories of sort of what life was oh, like I on set? Oh, I haven't watched them in years. Yeah. I, I have not watched them in years. I, I, I have not examined why I don't want to watch them. I, let's just say I don't go out of my way to watch them. Yeah. People at work will say, oh, I saw you in Marnie last night, or oh, I saw you in this. And, you know, I have fond memories of being on the set and doing the work. I don't have fond memories of everything I went through with her right. through all of that. But I'm I'm grateful that I had those experiences. I'm thrilled that I was able to work with so many legendary people in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, I would not take that back. Yeah. For anything. Yeah. I, I wonder, too, you know, you, you talk about um, suffering sexual abuse that she was sort of complicit in. She was she was a witness to yes. at least as a very, very young age. Very much so, yes. And I wonder, yes. you know, looking at part of me looks at that and says, well, you know, that was a long time ago. And I wonder, like, do you feel like maybe because of Me Too and things 
that the industry is in a different place these days? Or do you think that that is still something that sort of needs to be rooted out? And, you know, are, are there still dark corners where, where bad things are happening? Oh, absolutely. Of course, there are always dark corners. And I feel that there are more dark corners in theater groups or drama coaches or singing coaches that are perhaps not really on the up and up. They're more on the fringe yeah. of respectable Hollywood. Uh, at least that's where I found those things to take place. I never experienced that in the real Hollywood, in the real studios, in the real system. It was always these weird little groups that she found somehow and enrolled me in. That's where it tended to happen. And I think that is still the case. I think that you know, look at what's happening with the Boy Scouts. Look at what happens in the Catholic Church. Yeah. I think that there are bad people everywhere, and if they feel they can get into a niche that will allow them to be with children, I think they're going to try. Yeah. And that's why you really have to depend on your parent who is there, who is really in charge of you. You need to look to them to say, hey, buddy, we're out of here. Right. She did not do that. She chose to encourage it and to witness it for many, many years. And that's my biggest problem with people asking me about this term of forgiveness. I know it was decades ago. She's been dead many, many years. And perhaps if that kind of thing had not occurred, I would find it in my heart to forgive. But to be complicit for years and watch it happen, that to me is evil, and yeah. I have a hard time forgiving evil. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm i glad you're on the other side of that, because it was that was a tough section of the book to read, and uh, it, yeah. it, uh, I'm sure it was a tough experience to go through, too. You, you mentioned the Catholic Church. It reminds me of, you know, the, there was that movie Spotlight that sort of looked at what was happening in Boston around the, the uh, church abuse crisis. And there were parents oh, I that, didn't see that. Oh, no, it's, it's great. I didn't yeah. See that movie. It's uh, it was about sort of the Boston Globe reporters that, that broke that story. But there were parents uh -huh. that, you know, knew that maybe they weren't fully a witness to it, but they knew that, you know, the bishop would come over and things would happen, whatever. And they were like, well, it's the bishop and, you know, I got to put out nice things yeah. for him and whatever. And it, it's just interesting sort yeah. of how that that power dynamic. It can is happen. funny how, how their mind almost splits yeah. into, I love my child and want to always protect them. And then the other side of that is, but, 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 yeah. and there's a whole lot of, but yeah, it, I, it, it's hard. I mean, yes, the Me Too movement certainly is starting to put a dent in those things. That's not really protecting children at all. Right. Uh, I think it's a, a different mindset as far as trying to protect the children. Uh, but as of right now, I think it's only the parents who can do that. Yeah. And I guess the rest of us, too, that, you know, if the parents aren't willing to step in, you know, if we're aware of things or see something, you know, it's it's incumbent upon all of us to to protect everybody because sure. that's, yeah. Of course. Um, well, you know, just to kind of wrap it up, I guess we're looking at, you know, 41 years of your career on YNR. Like, what do you imagine is next? Like, how are you, are you there until they, they kick you out or cancel the show? Or, you know, do you have other, other bucket list <laughs> items that you want to achieve as an actor or in life? Well, I've always said 
as long as I'm happy there, I see no reason to leave. And it did present to me a life change, not just for my career, but for personal life too. I met my husband there. I had yep. my children because of that. It, it really altered my life so much more than perhaps a lot of other actors. So I love that show as one of my children. I care very deeply about it. I'm very passionate about it. So as I say, as long as I'm happy there, I can't see myself going, oh yeah, they might have to be carting me out in a wheelchair. (laughs) (laughs) Or they'll write it in. That'll be, you know, they'll use that. Oh dear God. You know what? You're right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there we go. Melody Thomas Scott there. What a fascinating story, huh? She is so interesting. I learned so much from her. Really enjoyed that conversation. If you want to learn more, you want to keep reading her new book, Always Young and Restless, My Life On and Off, America's Number One Daytime Drama, is available now. Go check that out. Again, it was a really interesting read. I loved her insight, too, just about the OJ trial, really changing everything for the direction of television. I thought that was very insightful, and it was something that happened long before a lot of soaps started getting canceled, long before talk shows and reality shows kind of replaced a lot of them. But I think she's right that that was really a seminal moment in our culture. And uh, I don't know that I would have necessarily pointed to it as what led to the decline of her genre. But she lived with it. and She lived through it. And, you know, Young and Restless is still the number one daytime drama on TV. So it's it's doing something right. They're hanging in there. That's what we're all trying to do. I'm going to have more with Melody in my newsletter, which comes out on Sundays, as well as Mike Holmes. The last episode, Melody and Mike Holmes, will both be in this Sunday's issue. So if you're not signed up yet, go to heathrasalad.com, enter your email there, and get on the mailing list. Make sure you get that newsletter delivered directly to your inbox. And I have new shows every Monday and Thursday here. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you'll be the first ones to hear it. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Look me up. Drop me a line. I will talk to you guys on Monday. Stay safe, everyone.